The old central neighborhoods are packed in tight below an eternal organic haze. In other cities, you breathe industrial contaminants, but in LA, you breathe amino acids. The hazy sprawl is ringed and netted with glowing lines, like hot wires in a toaster. At the outlet of the canyon, it comes close enough that the light sharpens and breaks up into stars, arches, glowing letters. Hello, this is Jesse Dukes coming at you from the cozy confines of my camper in Ivy, Virginia. I've got a nice wood stove fire here. And this is Upper Middle Brow. It's a podcast where me and my friend Chris Bagg talk about cultural products, mostly books, that we like, that represent, in our view, high craft, but are also entertaining. This is episode one, and we're starting with Neil Stevenson's 1992 novel, Snow Crash. So it is right now, as I record this, November 2022, and we taped this episode back in July. And since then, we've gone through a piloting process. Uh, We've thought about our format. We've played a few pilots for some test listeners. We've made some changes, some decisions. We've tightened some parts up. So this one was our first one, and it might sound a little bit rough to you. Uh, We were experimenting. We were working things out. And we were super excited, uh, but we think at its core, it's still a good conversation and worth sharing. So I'm just going to share it with you. Um, The next seven minutes or so is us kind of excitedly catching up with one another. So if you want to skip that and get right into Snow Crash, skip about seven minutes from this moment right now. And uh, yeah, let's just get right into it. I want to tell you, before we get into our topic, um, I did something I haven't done in 11 years since I last talked to you. My God. Which was surf small point. Oh, my God. Yeah. You were, that is amazing. Isn't it? Um, I mean, first of all, I think we have, though we haven't talked a lot, I know we've talked more often than 11 years ago, which yeah. was a hilarious dangling modifier that you just left in there. Um, but that is super funny because I had a visiting writer friend here last week and I pulled out my copy of Surfer's Journal and I was like, there's my first real byline, a story about uh, Small Point, Maine and my friend Jesse Dukes. Ah, well, ve- very exciting. It is unchanged as far as I can tell, or at least very similar. One of the things I learned, so listener, uh, this is a beach in Maine with a very well-known and hard to reach surf break because many people have built private homes in the place where it would be easiest to access it. There are other ways that are legal to get there, but they involve walking over public lands a great distance, which is what I did. Um, One of the things I learned on this trip is that, and I never had never really figured this out before. I always suspected it. It's actually much faster to park at Popham Beach and walk there than it is. And just to, walk than, down the beach? Well, to, then to park at Morse Mountain, which uh, right, the trail. Right, and walk which, over the goddamn mountain through the, the mountain, mosquitoes. Through the mosquitoes, yes. Which is a, and I think the only advantage of going over Morse Mountain is that you don't you can do that dry whereas if you walk over the beach at popham you have to wade a tidal creek um but if you're already Mm -hmm. wearing your wetsuit who cares um if you were trying to make a day out of it you know and you didn't want to get wet right away you might go morse mountain right and if but you're going to be wearing your wetsuit anyway going over morse mountain because that's the only way to fend off Uh, listener when we talk about mosquitoes 
we are not talking about <laughs> your run-of-the-mill sort of central New England mosquitoes. We are talking about rabid coast of Maine bloodsuckers uh, and a lot of them. They are. What was the Stevenson's metaphor comparing the metacops to the enforcers? Uh, <laughs> it was something like, oh, God, it was a great metaphor. It was something like the Salvation Army compared to the Green Berets or something something. Like uh, yes, it, it was, is. It is. It was, I'm looking for it right now. Yeah, if you can find it, that's the relationship of kind of normal, fat, <laughs> lazy New England mosquitoes to these a-hole mosquitoes. Um, anyway, it was great. Uh, I had I actually surfed there twice, um, which is why I was able to oh. do that comparison, and it was pretty good both times. And both times, I almost didn't do it because it was a long ass walk, and also from far away at low tide, it looks like there's no surf. You look out and you're like, there's no surf. And then you paddle out, and there might be a solid, you know, two to three foot longboard waves breaking out there, but it looks like it's ankle high because the beach is like a half mile wide or something like that. <laughs> I know. I, I badly need to get back in the water. My parents finally uh, took that great uh, 710 uh, that I somehow wrangled away from Chris Riley, and I think they donated it, for God's yeah. sakes. Um, but um, that is just an excuse for me to per finally purchase, make good on my 14-year commitment to purchase a longboard here in the state of Oregon. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good state for surfing. Uh, it's cold. You'll need a five five mil suit, I believe, in in Oregon. Oh yeah. For most, maybe maybe for get away. With, sure. Maybe you can get away with a four three in the summer when the water is merely 59 degrees and not like 48 <laughs> degrees Fahrenheit. And what uh, what what season wetsuit is it in Chicago? Summer. <laughs> that was supposed to be a joke. Uh, oh, no, I've surfed Chicago. Uh, you can surf Chicago. It, uh, not very often, but it's doable. Yeah. Uh, but let, let's dive into the purpose of our conversation. Um, the premise of our show is that we pick um, a work of art, um, in this case, a novel. I don't think it has to be a novel. Um, it could be a movie or something like that. That is uh, well known and well regarded, um, and we uh, consume it and talk about it. Um, and so this week we read um, the first half, roughly, of Neil Stevenson's 1992 novel, Snow Crash, uh, which we've both read at least multiple, at least more than once each before. Um, Let's do a, a first half plot recap, if possible, for the yeah, listeners. And let's know, try I'm to, excited. I'm, let's try I'm to do excited it. for this. Yeah, no, this is fun. This is really, really fun. Um, I, can I do the first chapter? I really want to do the first chapter. Um, I mean, I think, you're, I think you're looking at the first two chapters, really, because yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, those, yeah. those are, are really of a piece. But um, yeah, give us the, uh, you know, go until you run out of steam, okay, and so then <laughs> I will try to pick up the thread, and then we'll have some hilarious moments where... Neither of us remembers what happened next. Right. No, because and it's actually it's really interesting. The structure of the early chapters is interesting. Um, but in the first chapter, we meet a pizza deliverator who is a uh, wearing a bulletproof costume and has kind of a race car supplied to him by the mafia. Um, and he's delivering pizzas in the San Fernando Valley. And we gather it's sort of a dystopian kind of. Uh, collapsed government future in which all the suburban enclaves have become sovereign independent states and that's the landscape he's delivering pizzas in and he works for the mafia the mafia owns the pizza joint and they have promised they'll get the pizza there 
um, within 30 minutes or else the, the leader of the mafia, Uncle Enzo, has to come and deliver apology uh, to in the, they get like a free pizza and a, a trip to Italy if the pizza is late. So the stakes are very, very high. And our deliverator is handed a pizza that's already like 22 minutes have passed out of the 30 minutes allotted. And so suddenly um, our pizza deliverator, who is also one of our one of the two hero slash protagonists of the story. <laughs> name, I'm laughing <laughs> because I know what's coming next. Whose name we learn very shortly is hero protagonist, although that happens a little bit later, um, uh, uh, is set off on a quest to try to drive through several suburban enclaves with this uh, supercar um, in order to deliver the pizza on time. And uh, along the way, he picks up a skateboard hitchhiker who attaches to the back of his car with a magnetic harpoon, and then he wrecks his car in a swimming pool. Um, I think that's the first two chapters. Uh, yeah, I, I believe the the phrase in in the phrase in question at the moment is, "and the car does a stuka into the swimming pool." The car does <laughs> which, a stuka into the swimming pool, right? Oh, which is like one of those just Stevenson-esque sentences that you think, my God, this there's guy. Some, there's, some um, great, there's some great sentences in this book. Yeah. Oh, yeah. good Lord. Um, but yeah. if, my God, if we stop uh, if we stop to admire them all, we're never going to get through anything more than the synopsis. Um, uh, after that, we fast forward some time and we hang out with uh, Hero and his roommate who live in a storage unit. This chapter is basically here to introduce the concept of the metaverse, which right. is actually a term that Stevenson coined in this book and um, and is with us even today, as I'm pretty sure we're going to talk about later. But uh, yeah, we, we find out that um, the metaverse is a virtual reality place where you can uh, plug into and then you inhabit an avatar and can go to clubs and it's very ready player one uh, for those of you that have seen that uh, so we learn about the metaverse and then we kind of shift back to um, the other protagonist of the story uh, who goes by the moniker YT and we find out what that means a little bit later um, in the act of delivering the pizza that um, that hero was not able to deliver. Uh, she does get it there on time, um, setting up the narrative conceit that hero owes the mafia a new car, but the mafia owes YT a favor. Terrific. And I have a question about this. I'm going to speed thing. I'm going to try to speed things up a little bit here, too. So let me see if I can do it. Um, yeah. We learn through Hero's ex-girlfriend in the metaverse that there is a scary guy named Raven who's both physically uh, scary but is also disseminating a computer virus that is also some kind of human uh, pathogen. Um, and it particularly affects hackers, including Hero's friend and former colleague, Dayfivid, <laughs> or David, um, who is rendered uh, comatose um, and Hero, with some hints from Juanita and a electronic librarian butler and a stack of data, begins trying to figure out what's going on with this virus. Meanwhile, YT is arrested by some cops, put into jail, and Hero helps her get out and they escape uh, to a autonomous, um, like a little mini enclave called Mr. Lee's Hong Kong. 
and aided uh, by a robotic, incredibly fast-moving, nuclear-powered robotic dog slash rat. Called um, The Rat Thing. Uh, which is one of like Stevenson's kind of throwaway descriptions that actually is amazingly apt given the world that he has come up with. Um, I wanted to say, uh, as we meet Raven later on, I imagine him as being played by basically a combination of Dwayne Johnson and uh, and John Wick. Oh, I was um, I was and, thinking <laughs> Jason Momoa would 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 be Raven. Oh, that would also be really good. Yeah, I could really see that as a perfect fit. Um, yeah. But yeah, he is hulking and terrifying. Um, okay, so yeah, we get uh, yeah um, YT gets rescued from the clink by Hero. Hero gets into a sword fight inside the metaverse, um, where we learn that he is uh, the greatest sword fighter in the world. Um, and uh, then we also start learning some background information about what's going on, and in particular, one very important character named L. Bob Reif, mm. who is kind of a robber baron Rupert Murdoch figure who has purchased... Um, sort of a remainder United States Navy aircraft carrier. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, the, the USS Enterprise, in fact, the, the nuclear yeah. carrier. Which, again, like, you can just hear Stevenson, like, not being able to resist the jokes. Yeah. <laughs> well, there, I, I love, and neither can L. Bob Reif, right? Because he tells the Rockefeller joke about the yacht size. Uh, which... And, and it's like one of my favorite things about this book that it had the sort of like action novel appeal to 14 year old Chris, but then is also so, so full of these in jokes and self referential things and like loops and circles that it, it frankly is kind of fucking mind boggling. Yeah. Well, I mean, we should, and I think we looking at your sort of proto questions and mine, I think why is one of the things we're going to talk about. Uh, tonight too. All right, I'll see. I mean, you know, like I don't know that we need that much more plot in terms of. I mean, there's a series of adventures that ensue, in which essentially Hero starts to figure out that this guy Raven and this guy L. Bob Rife are up to something together, involving this computer virus, Coom biohacking, linguistic hacking thing, cum blood serum virus that some various people are distributing, including Raven, but also a bunch of religious fanatics. Um, and YT, who has teamed up with Hero at this point, with some help from the mafia and with some help from some of pe some other people, are also sort of trying to gather intelligence on what's going on. But we get the sense of a kind of looming threat. And in the sort of final chapters, we get the sense that this threat has something to do with L. Bob Reif's yacht, which is the aircraft carrier, and a whole raft, uh, literally and figuratively, of other boats that have sort of tied themselves to these yachts and are kind of drifting around the Pacific full of... Um, refugees who are intending to kind of forcefully emigrate to the United States. Is that enough of a plot synopsis? Is there anything else we really need to understand at this point before we get into the, the why of it all? Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, I mean, with, with Stevenson, there is a sort of central plot and then just these amazing spirals of window dressing that are a lot of the pleasure of the book. 
Um, I think we couldn't, uh, we, we should really not pass over the fact that uh, Raven, along with being an incredibly dangerous hand-to-hand -hand fighter, uh, he wields a set of glass knives, and there's a lot of descriptions of him cutting people open in uh, increasingly innovative ways, but that he's also hauling around a nuclear warhead in his motorcycle sidecar. Right. Um, and he is essentially a nuclear sovereign nation as one of the cop. Uh, so the uh, one thing that Stevenson does really well is, is really raise the stakes in ways that I find to be... Um, <laughs> really admirable. Uh, it's like watching a, a high wire act above, um, like a like a pool of piranhas that are swimming in acid. Yeah, well, it's interesting because you're referring to a scene in which uh, Raven single-handedly takes on several members of the Crips gang during a rock concert that Hero has promoted, all of which I think the only plot purpose of that is just to establish that Raven is extremely dangerous. <laughs> you know, like yeah. I, but it's incredibly entertaining. Um, and and it, I think it also starts establishing Hero's kind of Hero's journey. Um, as he, we, we learn that Hero is a pretty good, I would say, amateur sword fighter. He carries around a couple of Japanese swords, um, but I don't believe he's ever actually gotten into a real fight. He gets into fights in the metaverse, um, but I think part of what's being set up here is that at some point Raven um, and Hero might have some kind of confrontation, or at least we're meant to suspect that that might be coming at some point. And, and this is incredibly intimidating for Hero, who is a kind of nerdy hacker type, despite the fact that he walks around in bulletproof clothing and carries suits. He's really kind of just like a Silicon Valley software developer who happens to have some eccentric hobbies like sword fighting. Yeah, there's that great line when uh, he's talking to Squeaky the Enforcer, <laughs> and Hero says something like, um, people who've been cut up with swords don't look like this, and the Enforcer's like, you cut up a lot of people with swords, Mr. Protagonist? And Hero says, in the metaverse. Yeah. And again, this is like a great, uh, very funny throwaway moment. That that scene where he's facing off against uh, Raven in the bamboo, like, it's just one of those amazing scenes where you're like, okay, this is straight out of every single anime, like film or show that I saw when I was 16, um, and at the same time is doing something you know much more worrisome than that, um, and really does a, such an, a great job of dramatizing that like Hero thinks he's doing the right thing, but suspects that maybe he just got lucky. Um, in in fending off Raven, but um, everything about that scene, the uh, the Thrasher concert, which is headlined by Vitaly a band Chernobyl. called Vitaly and Chernobyl and the Meltdowns. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's funny, Chris, because like as we're describing this plot, if we if you hadn't read this book, our description, you would just be completely lost, right? Like like what? like it, like we we we've done a reasonably good job describing the plot of the first half of the book, but you would have no idea what we were talking about if if you hadn't um, read the book. And it's interesting. I think it actually relates to one of the topics too, which is I think the first time I read this when I was in my twenties, I didn't really understand what was happening, but I still found it incredibly entertaining. Yeah. Tell me about that first reading. Of I don't, yours. Like, I, you know what? what? I don't, it? I don't remember it very well, um, to be honest, but I think what I really glom, you know, there, there is, um, 
I, I, I was watching a documentary about Star Wars, and George Lucas was talking about how he would go and watch feature movies as a kid, and they would go in, and you'd instead of watching one movie, you'd go and you'd watch a series of kind of serials, you know, like in the 50s. So you'd see like Tarzan's Adventure with the like gray people part seven of three. And a lot of times you would go in or you'd see a Western, but you wouldn't necessarily have seen the earlier reels. Like you wouldn't have necessarily, so you'd be thrown into this movie and he described the experience of being able to kind of follow the human story without really understanding what was going on. Um, and he said that actually purposefully when he made the first Star Wars movie, which we now call Episode 4 A New Hope, but at the time was called Star Wars, that's what he was going for. And that's why he named it Episode 4. It wasn't because he necessarily ever intended of making 1, 2, and 3. Um, he wanted to kind of create this sense of there's a story you can follow, but you also don't really need to know what's going on. And I think that's the way I read it the first time. Like, I didn't really understand why Hero what Raven was up to. I mean, I understood that there was some kind of virus and it messed with people's brains and that Hero was trying to stop him, but I don't didn't really follow the whole Raft thing. I didn't really follow the Namshub of Enki uh, exposition. I just was sort of like, there's this kind of hacker with swords who's going after this kind of like Inuit guy and uh, they're having an adventure through LA and a Raft. I'm going to... Um... Boy, boy, do I want to pick up that that thread of George Lucas not intending for there to be other movies surrounding episodes four, five, and six. And it would have, that it would have is... been a much better world if he had stuck with that. <laughs> I know, but I'm not. I'm not going to go there. I'm okay. not going to do it. We're we're not tonight, Jesse. All right, all right, we we're gonna. It's a story for another day. Do it another night. Yeah, when we uh, when we read through the collected works of Timothy Zahn, um, you know, maybe that, maybe that. <laughs> I've I've read uh, some of those books. They're actually pretty well written, but um, yeah, there it's it's a time and a place. I would say that's more um, like lower middle brow than upper middle brow. Yeah, but, um, yeah, that is that's for our that's for our third podcast. Well, um, you have a question here that I'm intrigued about uh, a metaverse okay. question, and I have a question for you about the opening chapter that I really want to ask. Nice. Um, okay, my uh, my question about the metaverse, half joking, half serious. It's a two part question. Um, the first part is do you think Mark Zuckerberg has read Snow Crash? And then the second part, if Mark Zuckerberg has read Snow Crash, which character in the book do you think he most identifies with? Oh, uh, I think he has read Snow Crash, and I think that when he renamed Facebook Meta, there was some, there was some reporting around that. But I don't know, maybe he didn't because he, there would be copyright issues. Um, I think he has read it, and I think that Mark Zuckerberg doesn't realize it's satire and the world that Stevenson describing is not a world most of us would enjoy living in. Um, like, And so for that reason, I think he probably most identifies with hero protagonist. What do you think? Yeah, I think that I think you're totally right. This is a setup. I think he identifies with hero protagonist, but I'm pretty sure he's L. Bob Reif. <laughs> That's a very good point. Uh, everybody is the hero of their own story. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that's a good point. I also think that he really... I think there are people out there in the world who... I mean, I have a friend like this who really 
think it would be fun to live in this world where the U.S. government has collapsed and we've had hyperinflation and there are no laws and you can carry guns around and, you know, everything is a corporate. I think there's people who actually think that would be a humane, fun world to live in, too. And I um, and I think many of them work in the tech industry. I'm kind of imagining our reader, our listener at the moment, who's like, wait a second, what? Like, that is something that we just kind of glossed over that we didn't bring up. Yeah, there's no laws. There's no U.S. government. Uh, yeah. Everybody lives in franchises called burb claves. Not everybody, um, but uh, a, lo- a, lot, yeah, a pe- lot of people. A lot of people who can afford to and don't want to, you know, have to face hand-to-hand combat on a daily basis. Um <laughs> Uh, my other question, and this sort of touches on the hyperinflation thing, um, right towards the end of the section that we uh, that we read, um, YT is trying to buy some snow crash, and yeah. uh, she only has one point five quadrillion dollars with her, <laughs> yeah. um, and she pulls out a handful of bills, and the drug dealers say this girl wants to pay in Mises. Which I'm pretty sure is a reference to Ed Meese, the attorney general under Ronald Reagan. I think that's right. Which is like, I don't even, I'm not even quite sure what the joke is there, but I know that it's a joke. And it's one of those things where I'm like, who is this joke for, Neil well, Stevenson? Okay, so, I'm very... So, <laughs> so, so the book was written in 92, right? And Gipper's... We're going to assume probably refers to Ronald Reagan himself, right? To like Reagan's. The, and that yeah. seems to be the biggest denomination of a bill that you can find is a Gipper. Is a Gipper. Well, uh, but of right. course, everybody would agree that like a Hong Kong buck or whatever is, or con, what do they call it? A Kong buck is like actually. Kong buck. Yeah, is yeah. actually a much more stable uh, currency. Uh, so the, I think the implication is that we're in a future. And my sense is, is that Snow Crash is set in about now. Like, you know, 2010 to 2020, something like like Hero seems to be about our age, like like to have been born about the time that we were born. Um, right. And I think he's in his mid 30s, maybe, maybe late yeah. 30s. Um, and and so it's maybe like 2015 or something like that. And I think the implication is that Ed Meese was elected president sometime in the intervening before the collapse of the United States government. And I, I don't remember much about Ed Meese other than he was involved in some kind of tech scandal um, and was the attorney general under Reagan. But I think that's the implication of that joke. But I agree. I don't fully understand the joke. Um, My God, that, that did make it much better. I do love that, that maybe Ed Meese was the last president of the United States. <laughs> who maybe brought about um, the collapse. I mean, yeah, yeah. It, rem- yeah it I mean, it would be it would be sort of like... I'm trying to think of know, what it, yeah. Donald Trump being elected president? Well, it would have been like making that joke 20 years ago, right? Or, and this book is 30 years old now. Um, yeah. It would have been, I, I'm trying to think of what the equivalent joke would be today, but I think like Donald Trump blew up all those jokes, you know, like. It, well, you know, yeah, it, it, I mean, like. I, yeah, I don't, I mean, I just don't know what, it, I, I, you can't, you can't get more absurd without getting sort of Hitler-esque, you know, like I don't. I don't know. I mean, maybe you could go like in the liberal direction. You could be a sort of like, uh, I, I don't know who the equivalent would be. Um, or like President Kardashian. You know? or, yeah. Or like if, if Walter Mondale had, had somehow managed to defeat Reagan in, in, in the worst landslide defeat of, uh, in history, you know, something like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I'm trying to think of like, is there a cabinet member who is sort of odious now, um, but also... You know, like um, maybe some, but like 
President Cruz might be sort of like an equivalent <laughs> oh joke today. Yeah. Um, uh, or, or um, yeah, or President Mansion, perhaps. Um, um, okay, so this is my question about the opening chapter, and I, I have two answers to it, but I will hold off until I hear what your answers mm. are. My question is, I think if you were to simply map the plot of this novel... There really, there's only real two purposes to this chapter, the open, the very first chapter. And when you get to the the uh, YT completing the pizza delivery, I suppose that creates one more. But I think the main purpose of this chapter, in terms of the plot, is for our two protagonists to meet one another. Um, I, I mean, I think just about everything else that happens at that point, you, you don't, you you could have, you could start from the day that the roughly the 48 hour period that the first half of the book takes place in, you know, that starts with the concert, the Vitaly Chernobyl concert, which is happening roughly the same time that Hero's visiting the metaverse and having these adventures there with Raven and Juanita. All of this is happening in about 48 hours. Um, you could start the book there. Um, and yet we start it roughly six weeks before that in this scene that doesn't really have anything much to do with the plot that then takes place and the quest that Hero and YT go on to sort of figure out what's going on with the snow crash virus and the forces behind it. So I guess my question is, what do you think the purpose of that opening chapter is? That is such a good question. I, I don't know if I can answer it in, I don't know, the like 30 or 40 minutes that we have remaining. I, <laughs> I'll, I'll do my best. I'll take, uh, I'll take, my, I'll take a stab at it. Um, I kind of want to read the first paragraph as part of my answer. Do How it. do you feel about that? Go yeah. ahead. Okay. So, um, chapter one. The Deliverator belongs to an elite order, a hallowed subcategory. He's got a spree up to here. Right now, he is preparing to carry out his third mission of the night. His uniform is black as activated charcoal, filtering the very light out of the air. A bullet will bounce off its arachnofiber weave like a wren hitting a patio door, but excess perspiration wafts through it like a breeze through a freshly napalmed forest. Where his body has bony extremities, the suit has sintered armor gel. Feels like gritty jello, protects like a stack of telephone books. Now, I don't know about you, but that paragraph made quite an impression on 14-year-old Chris mm -hmm. sitting in an armchair in the Westboro Public Library waiting for my mom to pick me up from wherever. Um, I, I still get chills reading that, and you know, most of it is the power of nostalgia. Um, I mean, so many things about it jump out at me as different from the rest of the book. The sentence structure is mm -hmm. much shorter mm -hmm. and much more declarative. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, what we're doing is like a classic strong start in any kind of movie. This book, this book cries out to be turned into a movie, something that I think has been attempted a few times and then abandoned several times. Um, I think that this book would be wildly lessened without the first two chapters about the pizza delivery, um, because I, I don't think I've ever read what is essentially a section of exposition that has a spree up to here, the mm -hmm. way that, the, that this exposition does. Um, the, the compression and the amount of world detail that he's able to get in into such a small space um, does such an incredible job of setting the scene and being entertaining at the same time. Now, some of this is 
probably due to the testosterone-fueled subject material, swords, ninja outfits, what I'm pretty sure is a Lamborghini Countach that delivers pizza, um, a tiny gun that obliterates everything in its way. Um, and yeah, I, I think that this uh, what this chapter is doing is it is displaying that Hero had a very nice, simple, straightforward, declarative life delivering pizzas for the mafia. And it gets completely messed up by one um, late pizza. And it's it's just like a great exercise in both scene setting and exposition and character notes. Um, we really are coming in in the middle of something. Like Hero's story has kind of concluded before this book kick, picks up. Yeah. He's kind of given up. Yeah. And, um, and he likes his life as a deliverator. And it's, you know, it's sexy and probably pays okay and doesn't require him to uh, do a lot of the tech jobby stuff that we we find out later he was good at but maybe didn't love um, and uh, and it gets it all gets ruined and he gets saved by the other protagonist YT and the chapter does such an incredible job of weaving together the threads that are going to then unspool into the rest of the narrative throughout the book you, you could start this chapter in the You Store It with uh, Hero and, and Vitaly. I, I don't think it would work. Yeah. Well, I, I think I agree with like 90% of what you said. And, and I think the key word is exposition. Because I think also it, rereading the first half of this book, there are so, there's so much exposition. The world that you, the, in order to understand the plot that we're going to be sort of taken through, you need to understand or at least be exposed to so many ideas about the world. In particular, all of this like biohacking. I mean, how many chapters are just hero talking to a robot librarian about pre-biblical Mesopotamian religion and linguistic theory? You several. Know, Several, right? Several and, and chapters. So, and so <laughs> I, I feel like Stevenson is a master novelist. He recognizes if he's going to put that into the first half of the book, he's got to set the hook hardcore, right? Yeah. And and so I think the that first chapter it is exposition. It it does it does introduce us to this post uh, sort of economic collapse dystopian we, we kind of get the world that we're in where there are no laws and there are burb claves which are autonomous countries and you can you know uh, harpoon a car on the freeway and you can take a shot at somebody who's doing that and try to kill them and there's no laws and the cops are corporate uh, employees and they even have credit card um, this is not in the chapter but they have credit card receivers for for bribes <laughs> you know, they, they you can bribe them using your credit card, um, um, and I I, th I think that that's what's going on here is that Stevenson recognizes he's going to dump a lot of exposition to tell the story he wants to tell, so he wants to make sure you're hooked, and I think that's also the reason that in the early chapters where we're learning about the metaverse and we're learning about Hero's life. And, you know, we do have that nice description of the light, the dying light over Englewood coming into the you store it and all of that. I think he knows he's got a lot of exposition coming up, and that's why he keeps YT's narrative that's established in that time frame, in that those opening chapters, inter it's, going, it's interspersed 
with the you know hero and Vitaly going to the concert and hero logging into the metaverse we go we keep going back to YT and hearing about that very first night where she delivers the pizza and then breaks out of jail it's kind of like um uh, Inurito or uh, uh, Guillermo Arriaga plot where two things are happening at the same time but I do think I mean my best explanation is is the chapter it just it hooks you like nothing else and and I was I was thinking of like the literary influences on that chapter and the people what came to mind was Douglas Adams particularly the phrase about pizza delivery <laughs> um, and um, Hunter Thompson uh, to me, that the the first chapter really reads. It's got that kind of Hunter Thompson hyperbole in it, in a way that the rest of the book occasionally does. But that chapter is just loaded with those kinds of descriptions. You know, like this. Oh the, yeah, the, yeah. And I think I think that it's it kind of takes off from where you know from what you just said about like Douglas Adams and Hunter S. Thompson. Uh, oh, and the, um, the third one I would add to that is William Gibson too. And, and it's important to remember that this novel came out you know eight years after uh, Neuromancer. No, no, totally. And I think, um, I mean, if you read Zodiac, Stevenson's first novel versus this one, they are almost just unrecognizable. I mean, yeah. sure, an author's, an author's first novel is always going to be, you know, them kind of finding their feet. But Zodiac is a very dutiful, environmental, like, treatise of a yep. novel. Yep. Um, pretty straightforward narratively. And then you and then you get this book, and you're totally right. Like without Neuromancer, um, you know this book doesn't exist. The thing that interests me is like how many books don't exist without Snow Crash. Mm. I mean, you know, this book comes out in in you know 1992. Infinite Jest is is like probably being written yeah. <laughs> as as Snow Crash comes out. And there, there are so many echoes in, in that book to this one. Um, you know, the same sort of like vaguely post-American yeah. uh, kind of landscape uh, where like pretty terrible things are going on, but you can kind of still recognize it. Stevenson's um, having more of a lark with it, right? It, 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 I feel like uh, Wallace is a little more troubled by the possible. I mean, Wallace is still having fun in Infinite just but he's he's also kind of weighed down by the the the, i think like what it would be like to live in that world yeah i think you know and that's and that's uh sort of one of my my observation here is like that this book does read like this um this huge send-up of of like postmodernism, but then at the same time it's it's like embracing all of the same things that that the postmodernists are into in terms of self-referentiality. I mean he's got the ideas kind of wrapped around, you know, the the brainstem of the book. Like the book is called mm. Snow Crash. Yeah. Snow Crash is a computer process. It's a virus. It's a religion. It's something that happens to you. It's passed on through sex and drugs. Um, so, like, you spend a lot of time. And, and my experience with this book is that I have treated it like a virus. This is the book that I probably recommend to people more than any other book huh. in, in the world. Wow. Um, and it, I mean, again, like, yeah, I mean, you read this, you read this book when you're 14 and like, and it's 1993 and you're kind of lonely and you're kind of into Dungeons and Dragons and you're kind of a jock and you're kind of a nerd. 
like this book was written like this book feels like it was written with like me in mind. Of course, I know that's not true. Um, it's kind of true. But I mean, I mean, not not like, literally you, but a, right. a yeah, the kid who's uh, the kid who's reading his player's handbook on the way to soccer practice. Yeah, yeah. that's oh, yeah, uh, that is no, and, and, and Stevenson is a jock nerd, you know, just like yep. Chris Bag, uh, and so is Hero. <laughs> Um, and, you know, and, and I aspire to being a jock nerd, too. Although, uh, you, you are a jock nerd, Jesse Dukes. Well, thank you. Definitely. <laughs> but, yeah, but the, 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 the name, you know, like, um, it, like when you, I mean, even at 14, I was able to recognize that something funny was going on with the name hero protagonist. Right. And, uh, and YT points out stupid name, and then hero says, but you'll never forget it, which is basically how I introduce myself now when people are like bag. And I'm like, yeah, it's a dumb name, but you'll never forget it. Um, that, that is uh, that's one of the I've been realizing upon rereading this again, just just how many like echoes of this book, like float around in my brain all of the time. Um, and, uh, you know, as a as a cyclist, whenever a car pulls up next to me, I watch its front tires because that's what YT does to figure out where cars are going when she is uh, poon surfing them on the highway. Um, She's right. I mean, so, hey, listener, if you're not aware, she has a skateboard with these uh, sort of like uh, computer controlled wheels that allows her to kind of you know, Marty McFly style, uh, grab the back, except for she uses a little like magnetic harpoon, actually not unlike a piece of star Wars technology, the harpoon that Luke Skywalker uses to access, uh, you know, the, uh, <laughs> harpoon that, uh, Luke Skywalker uses, uh, to access the, uh, AT-AT <laughs> Walker in episode five in the first, uh, reel. Uh, <coughs> sorry. Perfect. I had to go full nerd voice there. You know what I'm talking about. That's the har- that's the harpoon. I mean, I think that's the origin of oh, yeah. that. Exactly that and, and like a- actual harpoons, but it's a magnetic. You know, like you asked me my impression of it too, and I read this in my 20s, and I had read Neuromancer. So to me, I did read this as a kind of rollicking satire, but it, but rollicking, very affectionate satire of yeah, cyberpunk. Totally. You know, like he's not. He's not, it's not a takedown. He, I'm sure he loves William Gibson novels and, you know, Bruce Sterling. But, but basically, like, let's have fun in this world. But I also think this question about postmodernism, it relates to a question I almost asked ask you. I think your question is better than mine. My question was going to be, is Stevenson literary? Which I think is a stupid question because literary is incredibly in the eye of, of the beholder and it's, it's like saying like do i like this or do i think it's good yeah. you know that said though i do think one of the definitions of literary and one of the definitions of postmodern literature those are separate categories but overlapping is i think some of these writers you've mentioned david foster wallace don delillo donna tart they're very very conscious about experimenting with the form of the novel and in fact maybe that's even their primary project right you know like that, that kind of like, I am a writer who is playing around with what this wonderful piece of art that I've inherited in the 80s or 90s or 2000s. I love novels, but I'm also going to try to take novels somewhere novel, right? And I think that that's, I don't think that that's Stevenson's concern at all. Right. I think, I think yeah. he's experimenting in the same way and he's winking at the audience a lot, hero protagonist. I remember in Donna Tartt's The Goldfinch, there's a moment where one of the characters refers to one of the other characters as 
an artful dodger like character or something <laughs> like that, you know, and and I'm sure that's Donna Tart telling the reader, I know that you know that I am writing a Dickensian novel or I'm updating a Dickensian novel. You know, I think that that and Stevenson's doing an awful lot of that winking. I mean, even just the fact that if you work for the federal government, you get polygraphed a lot. Just I mean, just <laughs> all these little jokes about corporate culture. You described the sword fight happening in a bamboo field. It's actually a microbrew hops field. <laughs> That's right. Which is another winking joke, right, about... And this is, like, kind of before microbrews really took off. It's another one of Stevenson's prescient little moments because I bet a microbrew growing their own hops in a brownfield in Los Angeles was pretty uncommon back then, and now you see that kind of shit all the time. Um, So here's my hypothesis, which is this novel and many of Stevenson's novels actually... He's not really concerned with the form of the novel. He actually really, what he wants to do is explore some ideas. That he's actually kind of at heart a uh, a theologian, a philosopher, a, metaf- a metaphysician. And he happens to make a living writing novels and he happens to be really good at it. And he also happens to, to recognize that if he can make a cracking good, entertaining yarn that a 14-year-old would love reading and a 45-year-old would love reading, lots of people are going to read it. But I think... I think the thing that's really driving him is he he wants to think about, you know, what 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 is our brain and what is language and what's a virus? I could be wrong, yeah, but that's to- my hypothesis. No, I totally I totally agree with that. I mean, like I think it's it's one of the reasons why when you suggested this book, I was like, "Oh my god, that's the perfect book because I think it really does occupy the same space that we're we're interested in." Like I think a lot of the writers that we're going to talk about, we're going to actually ask that question, like, is this literary? And then right after it be like, well, what the fuck does literary mean anyway? Right, right. I mean, that's you know? almost baked into the premise of naming a show Upper Middle Brow, right? Which exactly. Is like, yes. like, obviously, you and I care a lot about craft, but we're also very willing to dive into something that is is accessible and isn't necessarily lauded as literary or lauded as art per se even though i i don't know i feel like stevenson's he deserves to be talked about next to david foster wallace and and don delillo and and you know and actually with the best example chabon too because i actually think that chabon's writing style and stevenson's writing style are close cousins Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I mean, just that, I think we've kind of answered the question that, like, this is an action adventure novel with postmodern, I'm going to take out that word pretensions that I put in my question, with postmodern aspects. And I think it's also a postmodern novel that happens to be a gripping read for 14 year olds, for exactly the reason that you just said, he's, he's interested in ideas, but is able to put them in a really gripping yarn in the same way. You know, I think like Brett Easton Ellis is another author that's kind of in the same, Hmm. the same area. Um, But yeah, that thing about, about Chabon, you're totally right. They're both, um, they're both fabulists. And I think, I think that Chabon's fabulousness is a little bit more in the realm of sort of uh, the, the emotional. And I think that, Stevenson's fabulous tendencies are, are more in just the like thinking about t- taking an idea and running with it as far as as you possibly could. And and, and um, clarify, since this is in audio, you mean fabulous spelled F A B U L I S T, not fabulous. 
but <laughs> fabulous, like somebody who makes fables, right? That's the word that you're reaching for. Interesting. I always, um, I might be wrong about that word, um, but what I have always taken fabulous to mean, and this is why it fits so nicely with Chabon. So this is great. I hope we, I hope I'm wildly wrong, and we do put this out in the world, and everybody is like, oh wow. Um, that's like that woman that thought that X-I-N-G was pronounced Zing. Um, I've always taken fabulous to mean that like their stories are like in the world of the fabulous, you know, so sort of like the next, it's like taking the sublime and throwing a bunch of drag queens into it. Um, (laughs) something like that. (laughs) Um, and I think that yeah, I think the, if if you take that recipe, you get a significant number of Michael Chabon novels. Yeah, um, I love I love Chabon. I'm I'm not I'm not oh, uh, I'm not me throwing too. shade in any Absolutely. way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there there was another I, I, there's another paragraph that I really wanted to read that struck me as complete like a, a Chabon esque um, right, section. Me. Uh, it's page two twenty seven. It's when Hero goes up to Dayfavid's uh, um, modernist castle, which I was just like, oh my god! It just keeps it just keeps going. Right. Um, anyway, um, in in the Day Hollywood Hi- in in the Hollywood Hills, right? In the Hollywood Hills, yeah. Right. Um, so he is uh, he he pinches a beer from uh, Dayfavid's fridge and uh, goes up there um, in what in what used to be his favorite place drinking his beer slowly, like he used to, reading stories in the lights. The old central neighborhoods are packed in tight below an eternal, organic haze. In other cities, you breathe industrial contaminants, but in L.A., you breathe amino acids. The hazy sprawl is ringed and netted with glowing lines, like hot wires in a toaster. At the outlet of the canyon, it comes close enough that the light sharpens and breaks up into stars, arches, glowing letters. Streams of red and white corpuscules throb down highways to the fuzzy logic of intelligent traffic lights. Farther away, spreading across the basin, a million sprightly logos smear into solid arcs, like geometric points merging into curves. To either side of the franchise ghettos, the low glow dwindles across a few shallow layers of development and into a surrounding dimness that is burst here and there by the blaze of a security spotlight in someone's backyard. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny. That's a, it's a very memorable moment. And one of the things I like about that that has struck me about that moment, I have a couple things about it. But right before that, that's a moment where Hero is reminiscing about going. And we might refer to this character as David. We might refer to him as Dayfivid. Um, but going to his friend and former employee's house and how they would hang out, drink microbrews, and grill fresh seafood when they were kind of young, you know, software developers and entrepreneurs together. And to me, there's this moment where Hero is suddenly like in our universe. Like the world that's being described is very fabulous. <laughs> it's very uh, fantastic. It is a possible near future scenario but extremely unlikely and cartoonish in many respects but every now and again hero just seems like somebody you would meet in seattle the other thing i found very striking about it is what what do you think he means that in la you breathe amino acids 
Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, it. yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it, it, it an eternal organic haze. Um, I, there's got to be some detail it, in there as to why that is. But. Is it related to the biomass idea? Is he saying yeah, you're, I, you're I breathing kind of like sweat and blood and te- you're, you're breathing humanity as opposed to breathing, you know, hydrocarbons or so? Is that is that what we're getting at? Yeah, and not even humanity. I mean, like, by the time we're down to amino acids, I mean, we're talking about, you know, building blocks of, of anything. And, uh, and I mean, there's so much about this section that is primordial. I mean, yeah. the hibachi is rusted and buried in gray ash, like an archaeological relic. It, it's moments like this that you realize that, like, Stevenson is, you know, a wild craftsman. Yeah. <laughs> and that so much of what he's doing is setting up a whole bunch of the second half of the book, which is like this wild romp through archaeology and Sumeria and Assyria. And, you know, and, then, and then like a waterborne yeah. sci-fi novel, too. Right. Like right. A, a kind yeah. of a kind of high seas future piracy. I mean, I believe there's even a style of science fiction called like raft novels. But anyway, it goes it is it's a very, very powerful paragraph. And it's also, I think one of Stevenson's talents and at this phase maybe one of his weaknesses he's not at this phase in his career I think he gets better at it not all that great about emotional inner life of his characters you know his characters Mm -hmm. they might be jealous they might be frustrated they might be scared they might be angry I think there's a good description you know we're, we're made to understand that Hero is quite shaken up by his encounter with Raven we don't really he doesn't really describe the feelings he describes Hero at like 3 a.m. in his boxers practicing sword fighting. And that's a good description, right? That's a good show not tell. Oh, Hero can't sleep and he's up practicing sword fighting because he almost got gutted by this incredibly scary person. That, That makes sense. But I do think that Stevenson at this phase in his career is a master at these kind of surrealist oil paintings that you don't even really quite know what he's saying, but it, it does make you ache, you know? He's, he's sitting out there, he's looking down on LA, and he's experiencing something. Something, he's experiencing this sense of connection to this organic biomass, I think. I mean, that's how I take that. Yeah, it's, it's one of the few moments in this book where like, where the narration takes a break and kind of pulls back a little bit and allows us and allows Hero to, to breathe a little bit and, um, and, and kind of ruminate. And it, we don't get many other sections like that. I mean, yeah. I really this this all this always has struck me as, you know, the this basically the center of the book. I, I think you're totally right about the emotional reality, which is another reason why this book really speaks to 14 year old boys. Right. But, um, yeah, the very next page, you know, you get one of those great panning out, you know, wide shot, you know, with a big, long list in it. Um you know, that, that uh, you know, ends with a, a really great, witty, a culture medium for a medium culture mm. uh, yeah. kind of clause towards the end. Yeah. And um, and it's it's good. But you can also you can also hear a little bit of like young Stevenson's edgelord kind of uh, like, yeah, man, let's stick it to him. And, you know, and like a, little, a little bit of the like, I want to be Hunter Thompson or Tom Wolfe. To me, that actually exactly the, the, the medium culture really reminded me of Tom Wolfe. You know, there's another moment that I found really profound like that, that I'm remembering. It's not, it's not one of these descriptions, but there's a moment where I'm like, oh, I'm reading this kind of cartoonish, satirical, rollicking novel, and then there's Juanita's story about her grandmother. 
and mm. which to me feels like it almost could come out of a different novel, you know? Like, it's actually a very profound memory. This is Juanita basically remembers her grandmother. Juanita, as a teenager, gets pregnant with her boyfriend, hasn't told her parents, and her grandmother visits. Her grandmother, I believe, is Mexican and maybe doesn't even speak the same or doesn't speak English. And I may, be, I may be adding that detail, and that might be an incorrect, but is able to sort of ascertain that Juanita is pregnant and hasn't told her parents in something like 20 minutes by watching her face. And that's why Juanita becomes a computer programmer who specializes in rendering face faces in virtual reality and kind of sets her in. And, and, you know, it, it, it ends up being a plot point, we under, and it ends up being character development. But it's also just like... Wow, that, that's that could be a really powerful short story, you know, about a granddaughter and a grandmother, um, and it's a, it's a really lovely adult moment in a in a book that, you know, isn't all that adult a lot of the time. Exactly. Yeah. Juanita you know, is maybe always... the most adult character, right? Like she's she's kind of, like her entire relationship to Hero is like you know you'd be a really great guy if you grew up. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think you know, one of one of the, the, the moments of this book that goes a little awry for me is like the sort of re-sparking of their romantic relationship w- without without much justification narratively for that. There's a lot of shaky plotting. You, you know, I mean, yeah. you know, when I, there's a lot of like, uh, OK, the mafia and Mr. Ng and Mr. Lee are going to team up to try to kind of help humanity or like. Yeah, Uncle Enzo just loves YT, and we're just, you know, there's a little bit of, you know, like you said earlier, she delivers a pizza for the mafia, so they owe her a favor, and clearly she's talented. But there are a lot of moments in this book where what makes the plot thing happen, it feels a little bit shaky, a little, but it's it's okay, right? Because you are kind of watching an anime. I think. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think it's, I think that's part of the, that's sort of what we, what you're here for. And again, I think that's part of what the first couple chapters sets the, sets the palette for. Like, you're like, oh, like this is, this is where, what I'm here for. The most, the most loving narrative descriptions of this book are going to be talking about the contact patches that the deliverator's car speaks to the road in. Yeah, right. Or or the relationship between, as I mentioned earlier, the Metacops and the Enforcers, you know, being compared. Yes. Something like the Salvation Army and the Green Berets. Or it wasn't literally the Salvation... It was the Peace Corps, right? That's right. <laughs> yep. <laughs> which is, I mean, which is like, it's not an apt metaphor, right? It is an exaggeration of what he's... But it, it, it is a, a comic exaggeration. But it is interesting, I think, that the book has moments of wisdom and profundity. And I think also we've gotten to the topic of Juanita. I think she is the locus. She's supposed to be the locus of wisdom in the book, too. Yeah. And the degree to which Stevenson has something to say, I think he has something to say theologically. Juanita represents that. And, you know, the rebooting of their romance, it's a little bit shaky, but there's two things about it that kind of make it work for me. And one is... Uh, for whatever reason, Hero, maybe because he lost his mafia job, maybe because he's got a crush on Juanita, deciding to take Juanita's ideas a little bit more seriously than maybe he has in the past, you know, particularly the religious ideas. And so that's one. And two, there's this interesting insight he has that I actually recognized as a guy, you know, in 
what we could say late youth, early middle age, uh, the September of my youth, <laughs> which is when he recognizes Juanita's flirtation with him and is a bit confused by it and then figures out, oh, she likes me even though she know she feels like maybe she shouldn't. If, when, right. she, when likes, he, she likes me for me, regardless of all of the reasons that, like, that, that you know, Hero always worries that he's an asshole. That he's an asshole. To Juanita. And, and I think part of this book, and I think this is what you're getting at, is him kind of, like, putting that worry aside. It's putting that worry aside, and it's also, I would say you could describe this book in a very simple way. Hero's non- um, physical quest, his emotional quest is becoming less of an asshole and becoming a more responsible, uh, self-sacrificing and thoughtful person. I think that's Hero's Journey, actually. Hero's Hero Journey. <laughs> Hero's, that's Hero's Journey. Uh, somewhere Stevenson is, is happy that that, uh, that that joke landed. Hero's I really, <laughs> I would love Stevenson to listen to this one day. Uh, um, Neil Stevenson, thank you for, for giving us so much to think about and talk about if, oh you, if you're yeah. out there. Um, I, uh, do you want to go to our recurring segment? Um, our, yes. Uh, the as yet unnamed segment and listener if you have a name for this segment you can actually send an email check this out Chris I did this earlier today to jpd at uppermiddlebrow.com no way we have a we, we have a why do you have an email address and I don't what would you like yours to be I, I, I bought I bought two so there's one for you I mean I think you it, it. I, th- I, th- I think at this point it has to be ckb at uppermiddlebrow it could be bag it could be b-a-double-g uh <laughs> Yeah, let's go with that. Let's go with bag it, bag it upper middle brow. That's, all right, that's that's sufficiently confusing for everybody. B A double G. Um, all right, well, we'll we'll lock that in. Um, you know, uh, this is a pilot, so we can edit this part out if we decide to change the name of this of this podcast. But um, so uh, I have a trivia question for you. Um, so the segment, okay, cool. the unnamed segment, is each of us is going to ask the other a trivia question that is you know can be challenging, but it should be. Um, there should be a chance. Like, you should have a chance. Are you ready? I am ready. Okay. This is... So, I mean, I think there could be trivia related to the book. This happens to be trivia inspired by the book. Oh, gosh. Okay. Um, but you still might get it. Um, Neil Stevenson took a computer programming class... No Googling, by the way. Uh, okay. Neil Stevenson took a computer programming class in high school when he was in high school in Ames, Iowa. What technology did he write his software with? And I'm going to make it multiple choice to make it a more doable. So are you let's see, are you talking? I, I want I, I kind of want to take a crack at this without the multiple choice. But are you talking about the actual computing language? I'm not talking about talking? the computing language. I'm talking about the physical input device like what what did okay. his hand he, contact okay well then yeah i will i will uh i will take the uh i will take the multiple choice then because that could be good god a lot of things okay a pencil and paper b a teletype machine c a punch card rendering machine d all of the three above e none of the three above oh gosh um you know there are there is so much um punch card stuff running through stevenson 
Oh boy, this feels like a trick. This feel this is such a Stevenson-esque question because I feel like it could be a trick question that could end up being like like there's like a there's like a, a sixth part of the multiple choice that's like go fuck yourself. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if you put I all the am... choices together, it spells a word. That's the actual yeah. answer. Uh, I'm gonna go with D. All of the above. Yeah, I made it too easy because I, I feel like a, a, any good test taker would have gotten that when I give you D. All. It was all of the above. I wish I hadn't. But I also felt no, like it would be too hard if I if I didn't give you that option. Uh, you no, you did a the the E the none of the above was the part that had me sweating because ah. um, I was I was imagining Neil Stevenson rattling out lines of code on like a like a dictaphone, you know, or something yeah, it like could it could have been. Uh, he has this essay he wrote in called "In the Beginning Was the Command Line," which was kind of a, a meditation on uh, GUI graphical user in, interfaces and why more people don't use Linux and stuff like. Which actually it does relate to some of the themes. There's at one point where he refers to command line Linux as a tank, and he's like, "Why don't more people drive free tanks? Linux is free. It's a tank." And it very much reminds me of uh, Mr. Ng and his wheelchair. Slash yep. tank, um, yep. but um, he would write his command. His and I don't know what language programming language he was using, but he would write the code on a pencil and paper. Then they had a teletype machine, which he would then type the machine into the teletype machine, and the teletype machine was connected to a punch card rendering machine, which would then turn it into a punch card, and then they had another machine where they inserted that punch card and it would send tones down a dial-up modem to a computer down at the local university into that computer's, you know, processor and then the output would be spit off, spit out on the other end. I don't even fully understand what I'm saying right now. Oh, I know I, I love I love this stuff because I mean my dad, you know, my dad worked in not early computing, but like I mean, you know, he got his he's worked in semiconductors his whole life. He remembers punch cards. And yeah, yeah. And like like, you know, I think for all of us that grew up after punch cards, there's this sort of analog reality to punch cards that just does not fit with our digital brains yeah. now, yeah. even though um, punch cards are are digital data. Right. They are. They're yeah. essentially. What's happening on a microchip is just like, you know, millions of punch cards, you know, that are yeah. very, very, very small. And and I think, I mean, like, that is such that, it, like, you can, you, you can hear that little anecdote about Stevenson. And so much of this book makes sense about the interaction between the physical and the digital. Well, and um, particularly is, the relationship between the programming language and the machine language and how really good hackers start understanding machine language yep. and that that is what makes them vulnerable um, to the virus, to, to the snow crash virus. And, and also what makes them so powerful, like Mr. Ng, yeah. like with that, like, you know, one of the not first, but early renditions of kind of a cybernetic character um, yeah. that, um, you know, there's so many role playing games that or, or Enki, en right, is is yeah. understood to be a kind of hacker. And 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 this is a theme that's going to come back in other Stevenson novels too about the the relationship between hackers and wizards, which mm -hmm. I think is an idea that that Stevenson intends literally. I, I don't think he thinks yeah. that's an abstract relationship. No, that's totally that's Yeah, that is. A, that, I think that's a one to one. 
and it just makes so many other books about you know virtual reality uh, you know ready player one like you can really there's such a debt of um creation from those books to this one okay my uh my trivia is much easier um this is more of a how quickly can you get it i feel like i should put a time limit on it um in the world of snow crash what are the four things that America is only good at now? Oh, um, okay. One of them is high-speed pizza delivery. One okay. of them is microcode. One yep. of them is, I think the other two are TV and movies. No, music. Music and TV slash movies. Got it. There we go. Yes. Um, yes. The three, the three M's. Uh, music, movies, and microcode. Um, and, and then, of course, p- pizza and high-speed pizza delivery. Yeah. Um, nice work. Yeah. I, I wanted, a, I wanted a, a simple one that captured what I think is a really, uh, a really well, crucial part of the flavor of this book. It's great. And also, I mean, there's something going to Tom Wolfe in, in that whole section because he's describing the decline of American greatness in the American economy too. And those are the only four things that are left, right? That, that right. we're still good at, you know, everything else has kind of gone to shit, including our legal system and our military and, and our environment and, uh, safety, um, you know, which does bear I mean, some the- eerie resemblances to the world we're living in right now, you know, where, I mean, there are way more AR 15s now than there were yeah. when Stevenson wrote this. Yeah, I mean, I think you you can't. It, in in 1992, the idea of a privatized military was a joke, and in 2022, the idea of a privatized military is all too possible. Yeah. Um, you know, it's I mean, it's already happening around the world, and it's uh, it's only a small amount of time before uh, it's happening more often here. Burb claves are a metaphor for. I mean, yeah. we don't literally have burb claves, but you know, we do have gated suburban communities in which white they don't literally call themselves like white mansions in our own, yeah. or like little Pretoria or whatever. Oh yeah, not all of them. New South Africa. South Africa. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, he's satirizing something that really is. Uh, you know, an actual thing, which is white people or other kinds of, you know, privileged elites walling themselves off from everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, the the uh, the one the one last thing, I, the, the one thing I really want to know is I, I want to know if Jennifer Egan has ever read this book. Um, it, it's it's yeah, she's so inventive that I'm like, God, I don't you know, I could see her coming up with all of her stuff by her lonesome but i know that writers don't act like that i would just love to know if this is in her if this is somewhere in her writerly dna you know jennifer egan's another writer who i think i've only read a story by her i don't think i've oh, read gosh, you gotta, yeah you gotta do visit from the goon squad well uh i have on my list anything we forgot to talk about i'm sure there's more we can talk about was there anything you really really wanted uh, anything like you where you'll kind of burst if we don't mention them how do you pronounce the word i-n-f-o-c-a-l-y-p-s-e well i can tell you how the audiobook uh narrator pronounces it which is infocalypse interesting yeah i could see that um how what what does what what is your brain does your brain go with infocalypse infocalypse i mean yeah i think so i don't what would the alternative be 
I mean, it's so, I mean, like, they're talking about a literal collapse of information. Yeah. That this was one of those where I was like, my God, is he fucking with us, info collapse? Like, it's so, <laughs> I mean, they mean the same things, but I, I, I kind of wonder if he was just like, oh, this will oh, be like. collapse, like, right. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's it's a yeah. It's it's both a portmanteau and like an actual word that he has coined, which is fun. Well, but I, yeah, it's just it's another one of those where I'm like, huh. Like I wonder if that was intentional, accidental, or 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 just a just luck. One of the things that really you know I know that we had a little bit of chatter before we had this conversation, and you were surprised to hear me say that I had kind of missed the whole Nam Shambhavenki the first time around, which I do think when I was younger, I tend to actually, I read more using audiobooks now. And one of the things that does is I don't skip as many paragraphs as I used to. But one of the things I think is genuine is how L. Bob Rife becomes incredibly important to this story, but he is kind of, his entry into the story is very subtle. You know, <laughs> Raven's entry into the story is not, Subtle, but there's two, you know there are two main antagonists, right? Raven and El Bob Rife, and if you compare, they both come in in the same chapter. I think it's the chapter yep. where Hero goes to the Black Sun. With El Bob yep. Rife, I believe he's talking with a bunch of Japanese or Nipponese uh, businessmen, as Stevenson actually uses those terms interchangeably. I've noticed. And it's only kind of later at some point, you know, I believe Juanita says, hey, you might want to, you know, learn a little bit about Rife. It takes us a while. I think there's so many details and there's so much exposition. It takes us a while, I think, to realize how important a character he is. And I think maybe that's part of why I didn't really track the plot super well the first time I read it is that I kind of missed a lot of the early references that are explaining his early career before I realized how important those references were going to be to understanding what was happening in the second half of the book. Yeah. And I think that's a good jumping off point for next time, because we'll definitely talk a lot about El Bob Rafe uh, in our next section when we talk about the second half of the book. And uh, yeah, I have a very similar experience to you upon not this rereading, but my last rereading of this book, which was about a year and a half ago, about El Bob's right about El Bob Rave's place in the narrative, um, that I think is uh, kind of picking up off of where you're going. Yeah, it's it's. I do think this is a book that I, I wonder even if Stevenson intends you to read it twice because there are details in the early chapters that don't make sense until you've already read the book. I think. It, it gets back to that, and boy, we're getting off the, the deep end here, but that old E.M. Forrester quote that, like, the two things you read a novel with are intelligence and memory, and they don't, and there's this great image that your intelligence is sort of the bright advancing line um, as you encounter the words on the page, and your memory is sort of the, like, glow that that bright line leaves behind it, um, and you can't read a novel without either of them. Um and uh, and yeah, I think you're right that like this is such this is such an example of of good narrative craft. It's just very complex. There's a lot of little details that early on you're like, ah, I don't know where that's going to pan out. Um, but having read it a bunch of times, you start seeing them and you're like, oh, my God, this is an intricate piece of work. Uh, tell tell our dear listeners what what we are. I think we've implied it. But what are we what are we going to talk about next time? 
All right, next time we are going to wrap up our romp, our like hallucinatory walk, our, I don't know, I'm not even sure what to call this, through Neil Stevenson's snow crash. Our uh, high-speed pizza delivery. It was not high-speed. We took like 45 minutes describing the... <laughs> it wasn't quite that long, but uh, this was... Uh, we, we took a while uh, describing uh, the... the recapping the plot before we got down to the... the um, the analysis that we wanted to talk about. Um, so yeah, we hope yeah. you will join us for that. This is a brand new podcast. What I'm saying to you might get cut out. We might change our format, but for now we are called Upper Middle Brow and you can write me at jpd at uppermiddlebrow.com. You can write Chris Bag at B-A-double-G at uppermiddlebrow.com. Hopefully, I hope, I'm hoping we can get those emails. I haven't actually registered them yet, but I have the domain registered. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, let us know what you think, and we will see you next time. Let us know if there are books that you would like the two of us to give this, quote, treatment, unquote, to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, although I reserve the right for us to make our own decisions about that. It's going to oh, be. absolutely. Man, but... <laughs> I, like, if we keep doing this, it's, it's going to, it'll be a while before I relax, and I'm like, okay, finally, we've. We've done enough of the ones I really, really, really want. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's good. There's always going to be more. God damn it. I hope um, so. Well, yeah. yeah, I hope I hope there. No, there will. I, I could do this for the rest of my life. Um, Chris Bag, this was so much fun. Um, thanks for agreeing to do this. I really, I really Jesse enjoyed Dukes. our conversation. This was a blast. I'm, I'm so enjoying this as a way to uh, spend time together with uh, my once and future roommate. Uh uh, well, uh, until next time, um, do you want to hang uh, after we say goodbye to the listeners and have a, a quick little wrap up? Or, or okay, and then yeah, I'm totally. gonna I'm gonna go ahead and stop the m- m- recording on my end right now. Um, goodbye, y'all. Bye. Hello, it's Jesse again, and that was Upper Middle Brow episode one. Upper Middle Brow is a small point production. Jesse Dukes and Chris Bagg are the hosts, producers, and creators. Thanks to our pilot listeners, including Justin Reich, Catherine Nagasawa, Adam Brock, Robert Lorzell, Jenny Grieve, and Josh Lieberless. Music came from Ben Pajak and Jesse Dukes. And here are some sounds from Ivy, Virginia to take us out. Hopefully the Blue Jays are still singing. Blue Jays singing, acorns falling, leaves crackling, farmers farming, hunters hunting. See you next time, everybody.